0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Dylan LeClaire is the Senior Market Analyst at UTXO Management. He also writes a newsletter with Bitcoin Magazine. In this conversation, we talk about Bitcoin, on-chain metrics. We talk about Bitcoin's price, the market structure, and what to expect in the coming weeks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dylan, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 Conference. Bitcoin 2022 is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that takes place April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. All four days will be jam-packed with exclusive content, exciting announcements, and an incredible lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is industry day for enterprising Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or career within the ecosystem. Days two and three are general conference days featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Maulers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off on the fourth day with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, featuring artists Kay Flay, Mo, Royal, and The Serpent, Apache, Asadi, and more. Stay tuned for the upcoming lineup announcement. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger, so make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. Visit b.tc conference to learn more. Again, that's b.tc conference to learn more. Ticket prices increase on January 14th. Use promo code POMP for 10% off, and I will see you in Miami. Today's episode is brought to you by Fundrise. You all know I believe that the best investors both understand and seek out extreme asymmetry fundrise is here to help you do just that it's the largest direct to investor real estate investment platform out there giving you the opportunity to achieve upside of an asset class previously reserved for institutions and high net worth individuals That's right, Fundrise is making high end private market real estate investing accessible to everyone via an easy to use automated platform. Its 1 million users already know that the investment with Fundrise is capable of producing strong appreciation returns and income generation while helping to stabilize a diversified portfolio. That's more important now than ever in our inflationary environment. See for yourself how over 190,000 other investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started with as little as $10. Go to fundrise.com slash POMP today. And for a limited time, you'll get $10 when you place your first investment. Again, that's fundrise.com slash POMP. Go check it out. And when you make your first investment, they'll give you $10 on top of it. Fundrise.com slash POMP. Today's episode is brought to you by Brave. Brave Wallet is the first secure crypto wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street. More control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. Most wallets are browser extensions, a Web2 technology. That means the same old risks, app spoofing, phishing scams, and theft. Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. No extension required. With Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap assets, manage NFTs, even connect other wallets and dApps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Again, go download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Today, Bitcoin on-chain derivatives and macro. Great title to all these slides. Let's start with Bitcoin realized market capitalization, the realized cap what the hell is this and why is it important?
1: Yeah, so uh, this is kind of a mainstay in a lot of my uh, slides, my slide decks uh, with you guys. And this is just kind of a bigger kind of broad picture of the Bitcoin market. So that realized cap is just the, the aggregate basically figure of every Bitcoin that's ever moved and the price that was last moved. So you can almost think of it as like an organic price of, of Bitcoin. Uh, and oftentimes during bull cycles, when the Bitcoin price goes parabolic, uh, realized cap will, will increase um, with it, but with a lag. Um, basically because new capital is flowing in to the asset and old coins are distributing. Um, and so basically, uh, over the last about, uh, since summer, since about August, we've seen these capital inflows have, have really started to slow, but in absolute terms, they're still pretty big. I mean, we, it's about $90 billion of capital inflow since August. Um, and to put that into perspective, the next slide there, if you're looking at the, the chart in linear terms that realized cap figure it's, it's basically since, since August, we've seen Realized Cap grow by its entire figure uh, at the top of the 2017 market. That should be labeled uh, 2018, January 2018. Um, it's $90 billion. So in relative terms, we haven't seen really the capital inflows to, for Bitcoin to be a multi-trillion dollar asset yet. But uh, in, in absolute terms, uh, the capital inflows are here uh, and they're continuing to come in. It's just uh, for the time being, uh, it's, it's slowed up a little bit, a little lackluster in relative terms. Okay, when you think of this realized market capitalization, can you explain?
0: Uh, is this a uh, kind of backwards-looking metric to your, in your opinion, or is it a forward-looking metric? In terms of, do you use this to understand what's already happened, or do you use this to try to anticipate something that's going to happen in the future, whether it's price or, or other types of metrics?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think with realized cap, it's it's more of a backwards-looking metric, obviously, because you can see just you know the price at which every coin has ever moved. Realized price is just. Uh, realized cap divided by circulating supply. Uh, Where you can kind of be more forward looking with the metric is if say you take a ratio of, um, and I didn't include it in the slide deck, but that market value to realized value metric, I I present a lot. It's just a ratio of price uh, to to this realized price metric. And and oftentimes the lower it goes, currently it's about 1.75 Real the MVRV ratio below one is like a generational buying opportunity. So uh, it's not often that we see it, but that's more of a forward-looking metric. when you take a realized or a, a ratio of these two metrics, and so um, you know on a relative basis, it's a lot more attractive to buy Bitcoin at 40k today than it was uh, at the beginning of last year. Um, so that's more of a forward-looking way of, of, of looking at this metric
0: got it now we've got the realized price 30-day change which is basically just taking what is it the 30-day kind of rolling average and uh, looking at how that's changed over time
1: yeah so this is just a rate of change uh almost a derivative not to be confused with derivative financial markets but uh for any calculus nerds out there this is just a derivative as a rate of change of this realized price metric and so you can see despite since say august we've had 90 billion (laughs) around there of capital inflows. On a relative basis, it hasn't been that much, given just the market size of Bitcoin has obviously grown a lot since 2017. Um, and so just on a relative basis, just to kind of reiterate, uh, capital inflows are here and they're large, um, but it's not enough to send Bitcoin parabolic just yet. Got it. And so then when we go ahead and we
0: look at the three month futures annualized rolling basis, when you start thinking about realized price in relationship to futures or other types of uh, of more exotic, um, you know, ways people can get exposure, Is there a connection between those two things or do you look at these as kind of separate and distinct uh, types of data points, but it's important to look at them in totality to actually understand what's happening with Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's, it's, you know, you kind of have to look at all of these things to get a big picture of the market. And the reason I included this chart uh, and obviously basically this rolling basis, the spread between that futures price uh, and the spot price of Bitcoin, in this case, the three month futures, and then we annualize that out. So. Say when when yields are twenty percent, really that's that basis spread is about five five uh, percent, uh, but we annualize that that figure out, and so obviously there's a really really uh, strong correlation here, and basically what it's showing is that while while you haven't seen this realized price or this realized cap metric um, grow a lot, expand a lot in relative terms, uh, this chart is basically telling us that derivative speculation. Uh, and mostly by incumbents, uh, with you know whether you want to call them whales or uh, you know whether it's crypto hedge funds, uh, basically the the speculative bid in derivative markets has been basically the the largest part of this price action uh, over the last say quarter or two quarters. Um, the, those organic capital flows that we saw at like late 2020, early 2021, again are are here, but it's just not enough to send Bitcoin really parabolic. And uh, when we broke that all time high and went to sixty nine thousand. Uh, It was mostly just derivative market speculation. That's been the driving force.
0: Now you've got this uh, Bitcoin price weighted by hourly PERP's funding rate, which is an absolute mouthful to say. Uh, Explain what this is and then why do you think this is so important to pay attention to?
1: Yeah, so PERP's uh, is short for perpetual futures. It's another futures market instrument. And basically this is, um, the the PERP's is the the largest derivative contracts in in crypto and Bitcoin. Um, And so what you can see here is uh, weighted by the funding rate. It, it essentially just kind of shows when Bitcoin's a little overheated to the upside or downside, or it's more just kind of flat. Uh, it, it's basically a way to kind of show or to quantify that speculative bid, that speculative premium. Um, so fun, when funding is really high, what that means is that derivatives, that per, uh, price, that contract price is ahead of spot market price. So that's, you know, when, when that funding rate is very elevated, it's saying that that's the driving force in the Bitcoin market. And, you know, over the summer, we saw the opposite. Uh, where that funding rate was a lot was below uh, the the it was a negative funding rate and so derivatives were driving the price lower than spot and so that's why we kind of got a big short squeeze and so it oscillates uh, and definitely there's kind of a a huge sentiment factor here uh, but that's kind of a lot of the reason why Bitcoin is is so volatile and we see these these moves is is these derivative markets and understanding the dynamics behind them. Got it. And so if we
0: go ahead and then we look at the U.S. government bond yields, which I know you love talking about some macro data, uh, help us understand why the uh, the bond yields are acting the way they are and what that has to do with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so obviously we've seen uh, a 7% CPI print, uh, highest in 40 years. Uh, it comes at a, at a time when, when bond yields are near historic lows. Uh, in 2020, we kind of got to that historic low point. Uh, yields almost went to zero uh and the fed funds rate is at zero or zero 20 you know 25 basis points basically there um and recently kind of the feds come out a little bit hawkish uh in 2022 saying we're gonna the market's basically pricing in four rate hikes and you can see this with say like the government bond futures market Uh, but you can see these yields are really starting uh to bend upwards and and for those that aren't familiar with bond contracts yields are inverse with price so when yields go up the price of bonds go down. Um, and when global debt markets are a few hundred trillion dollars uh, and that risk-free yield is starting to go upwards, it, this means that government bonds are being sold. Um, so a lot of things, uh, equities, uh, Bitcoin, um, as, as these yields go up, what it's saying is that these prices are going down. Uh, and just with how the credit system works uh, and, and all the collateral values, essentially, uh, it means kind of more of a risk-off is coming as, as the CPI print is, is coming really hot. Got it.
0: And so when you start to look at uh, the Fed rate hikes, obviously there's people who think there's going to be three, four. We've also seen, I don't know, uh, JP Morgan's uh, CEO, Jamie Dimon, talk about seven, six. Uh, Where's your thought process in terms of like, what's more likely? Is it a lot or is it, nah, maybe we get like one to three?
1: I think what the Fed's trying to do now is they're really trying to, uh, they're really trying to get markets to correct a little bit without doing too much. They're trying to talk markets down because they know everything's in in a big bubble. Um, I, I don't think they're that oblivious. Uh, and apparently that futures market's pricing in about four rate hikes uh, in December of 2022. So it's pricing in a fed funds rate of, of 125 basis points, 1.25%. Right now it's at 25 basis points. Um, and so that's the expectation. And I think they're going to hike until something breaks. I mean, that's what they've been doing for basically uh, the last decade or, or two. Um, they, they try to tighten when, when the economy is running hot uh, and then they end up breaking something in the bond market or the debt markets and, Uh, They reverse course, and so I think that's kind of my base case here. Uh, I don't know how far they get, but uh, credit markets are already starting to uh, to gurgle a little bit. You can kind of see that contagion already starting to to unfold, and so uh, I guess we'll see how far they get. All right, now we've got the S and P five
0: hundred reported earnings yield compared to the U.S. Treasury ten year bond yield. Uh, When you look at this, what is this showing you?
1: Yeah, so the S and P five hundred earnings yield. This is essentially this is the inverse of the P E ratio. P.E. ratio is just a way to kind of value a stock price to earnings. How expensive relatively is a stock? Um, so when we see this, this blue line, that's the S&P earnings yield. What it's showing is that's P.E. ratios are, are continuing to go up. And it's very, very correlated, this earnings yield with the 10-year treasury. Um, and so, you know, when we're in an environment where real yields are, are deeply negative, that's that CPI at, at seven and the, ten, the 10-year treasury at, say, uh, 1.5 or 1.6, uh, what it's really showing is that th- that's the reason that equities are going to the moon. And so as as the market starts to price in uh, some rate hikes, some sustained inflation, uh, whatever the case may be for these bonds to start selling off. Uh, what That's kind of also a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty heavy force uh, for these equity markets to sell off uh, the discount rate on on uh all of these equities, uh, if yields go up, um, the valuations of these companies get crushed. And so when you're starting to see tech sell off, if you look at say, uh, ARK Innovation and their ETF, a lot of these uh, long duration growth stock companies that, that aren't very profitable and they're being priced out uh, at, at really high, insanely high multiples. Um, the reason those are selling off is because of this, uh, this developing environment of potentially higher yields. And that's what the market's pricing in.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch this all kind of occur, uh, given uh, what's going on in the uh, in the crypto market. And then we've got the uh, Bitcoin S&P 500 realized correlation, which seems to be like the topic du jour of uh, tons of both macro investors and also mainstream media of just like is Bitcoin and the S&P 500 correlated? And how should we think about that? What's your take uh, on this chart?
1: Yeah, so this is the the rolling one month correlation right now. It's about at 56 uh, 56%, uh, percent. So it's you know pretty pretty well correlated here. And over longer time frames, uh, I think that that correlation breaks down further. But really, uh, when we're this kind of late in a debt cycle, everything's uh, riding the tide of of expanding or contracting liquidity. And so uh, when we're starting to see that tide pull back a little bit, uh, Bitcoin is 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 treated by many as a risk asset. Um, but I think what, what is often still, you know, the information asymmetry is still very strong is that ultimately uh, Bitcoin is also a risk off asset in the sense that yes, during a liquidity crunch, during a, during a period where the dollar gets bid, uh, say March of 2020, Bitcoin is going to take a, a brief hit, but ultimately the store of value, uh, thesis for Bitcoin isn't, isn't wrong. There is a production cost. There is a, uh, Way to custody your Bitcoin with zero counterparty risk, uh, unlike any other asset before. And so, in that sense, um, Bitcoin is a risk-off asset and is something that you want to own in a deflationary environment if it is allowed to play out. And I think the reality is is that deflationary environment, however long it takes to to unfold, I think it's not going to be allowed to persist for too long because uh, this this global everything bubble just can't uh, can't take it. And so. Uh, while this correlation is is pretty strong and if equity markets sell off as, as the market prices in a Fed hike or Fed, multiple Fed hikes, uh, I think the reality is, um, you know, the macro funds, uh, these investors that are looking just at correlations and not uh, a fundamental understanding of Bitcoin, they're going to sell the asset and that's okay because the people that are you know have conviction uh, and understand the thesis for uh, a non-sovereign uh, asset in the digital age that can't be printed or uh, manipulated uh, they they understand what bitcoin is and are happy to buy at a discount so
0: really, there, there's a strong argument that there's been a financialization of Bitcoin. There's a different set of holders now. They're going to treat this like their risk asset versus the you know, kind of quote unquote Bitcoiners who are going to actually just hold Bitcoin as their uh, reserve asset. And so even though it's the same asset, when you have different people holding it for different reasons, it gets treated differently. And there's almost a mismatch to some degree of how much money the Wall Street and financial institutions have versus the you know,
1: average pleb who says, no, this is
0: my reserve currency. Is that a fair way to think about it?
1: It's a great way to think about it. And I think the financialization of Bitcoin is always going to happen. Uh, as Bitcoin is a you know $800 billion asset today, it's going to be a $5 trillion, $10 trillion asset at some point. The larger it gets, I think the more pure, uh, basically the more pure it becomes at showing the, the everything bubble and, and just being a representation of the the credit expansion and credit contractions in the legacy system. We've seen that in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and now going into 2022. And I think it's going to become increasingly true into the future. It's just basically a a calling the bluff of the central bank put, Uh, And it's basically a check on the Fed to say, uh, however irresponsible you are, uh, however far you want to take this, uh, people have an opt out. And so whenever they do reverse course uh, on these hikes, and they will, uh, depending on when the the system breaks, when when there's a a big crack in the bond market or, or in equities, if say equities drop 20%, Uh, I think the, the reaction of Bitcoin will be quite telling. Uh, from that point. But we'll have to wait a little bit for that, in my opinion. Got it. And and when you start
0: to think about that financialization, uh, obviously, um, if we kind of think of on the far left, maybe of the spectrum, you have the individual, the retail investor, they're treating Bitcoin as uh, that reserve asset. On the far right extreme, uh, I think that it becomes really interesting when you think about maybe a nation state. And like, if you look at El Salvador, like they're holding it as a quote unquote reserve asset as well. They're not trading it. They're not treating it like a macro risk asset. But in the middle is the Wall Street firms, the organizations. and so is it concerning to you or is it a positive signal that retail and countries almost act the same uh, versus the institutions uh, on Wall Street? Like, is it just time horizon difference or like, wh- why is it that an individual in a nation state act the same, but a, a, a trading firm uh, or, or some sort of bank, they have much more of a short time horizon?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I think Ultimately, Bitcoin is just in its monetization phase and it's slowly entrenching itself on everyone's balance sheet uh, in the entire world. Uh, when you decide to make an, you know, to allocate to Bitcoin, you're saying, I'm going to hold this on the right side of my balance sheet, on the asset side of my balance sheet. Uh, and there's assets and liabilities everywhere. Uh, and so ultimately, the dollar being that world reserve currency, uh, there's a lot of dollar denominated liabilities out there. And so uh, depending on, say, someone's risk management or their asset and liability structure or breakdown, uh, would say something like 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 a hedge fund uh, or a pension fund or an endowment um, where they're holding say U.S. Treasury securities or or anything else. Uh, Bitcoin is going to be treated in that risk bucket, right? It's a risk on asset. It it is high a high beta play on central bank liquidity. Uh, and for the for the plebs or say for El Salvador, uh, they're saying we're going to adopt it as legal tender. We're going to adopt this as our unit of account, and we just want to accumulate. Uh, and so I think ultimately everybody is kind of. Uh, depending on on how they play it, but it's still just monetizing. It's a it's a new asset. It's still only 13 years old, and people will allocate and and play to to how they want. And, and I think ultimately it, it transfers from that risk on asset to just being a risk off asset as as people kind of understand that the end game of central bank uh, and fiat currencies is always uh, basically in a perpetual inflation, perpetual monetary expansion.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, Joe John. What questions you guys got? What's up, Dylan? Uh, mine's just around news. So I think it was this morning Cash App announced that they're integrating the Lightning Network where U.S. customers will be able to send Bitcoin anywhere in the world instantaneous for free. Uh, how does news like this play into your mind when it comes to like the broader price action that we might see?
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's a huge announcement. And I think <laughs> the market doesn't really understand how big it is. Uh, just the, the normalization of and adoption of Bitcoin and, and second layer solutions like Lightning um, how many square terminals are there in the U.S. or around the world, right? Like what, what Jack Mallers is doing, what Jack Dorsey is doing. Uh, it's, it's really, really exciting. And, and all this stuff like Lightning Network integration, it's a completely open open network. So anybody can, can plug into this thing just like Twitter did, right? They disconnected their API. And so uh, this is not something where price will spike, like say, uh, if there was some small cap uh, Altcoin announced some 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 news. The price would would spike ten or twenty percent. Or if some you know if GameStop announced that they were accepting Bitcoin or Dogecoin, the, the price pumps. Well, with Bitcoin at a you know eight hundred billion dollar asset, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna pump on news like that. It's it, ultimately it's just about the supply and demand dynamics that take sometimes weeks, months, quarters, years to unfold. Um, that that supply squeeze thesis isn't wrong. It's just often a little early and derivatives kind of mask what's truly happening. Uh, but when someone like Square comes out and says uh, we're building on the Lightning Network, I think the the logical thinkers, the people that have that have been a, around tech for a while, can kind of see what's what's happening under the surface and just ha- you know how powerful these network effects ultimately are. Uh, and I think that's that's something that's quite misunderstood, in my opinion. It's not priced in. <laughs>
0: John, what you got for us, <clears throat> Dylan? So Intel also came out this morning and basically stated that that. They are going to create um, mining rigs for people at low efi- low energy um, and very efficient rigs. How does that affect the hash rate? And like, is there a cap on how like many miners can be on the network at once? Like, is there is, at some point does it become bad for the network with too many miners or not at all?
1: No, I, there is no cap, and I think ultimately there's there's the largest economic incentive in the world to continue to spin up and plug in these miners. Uh, if you have any sort of waste energy underutilized. Energy resource, uh, Bitcoin is going to come in Bitcoin mining, and they're going to basically they're going to harvest that underutilized energy and almost flatten out uh, these these power costs around the world. We're just starting to see that play out, but it's a no-brainer for all these um, semiconductor manufacturers, uh, chip manufacturers to get into Bitcoin uh, mining production, or just uh, whether that's ASICs or uh, you started to see like uh, there's GPUs for for other crypto networks that are that are being produced, and there's a super high demand for these chips because because they're so valuable. And, and so it's a no-brainer. And I think it's it's ultimately very encouraging. Uh, we want to see competition in this in this field. And for a while it was uh, kind of dominated by a monopoly with bitmain. And so just to see other other people uh, announce their uh, I think Square announced that they were going to produce uh, Bitcoin miners that they were going to attempt to uh, block blockstream has also announced uh, they acquired an ASIC manufacturer and so to kind of see this this competition and potentially to see it uh, on board uh, and onshore in the United States is, is very encouraging and it's a good development.
0: Dylan, we just uh, got news that uh, Intel, a $220 billion industry leader in hardware manufacturing and, and uh, chip computation um, is going to launch a low voltage kind of uh, high impact um, Bitcoin ASIC for mining. When you see a player like that start to participate in the industry uh, is that just like a, yeah, of course, like everyone's going to do this? Or is that something else that like, is at play here? Like, in, like Intel, right? This isn't Bitmain. This isn't some no name firm. That's like, Oh shit, we got to throw the Hail Mary pass Intel does whatever the hell Intel wants to do. And they're going to get into Bitcoin mining. Like wh- what do you, th- what's your take on
1: that? Have you seen the price of ASICs recently? I mean, it's a no brainer. <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, they're all going to come. Uh, so, I mean, ASIC manufacturing as a, of total semiconductor production is still very small. I think it's less than one percent, um, and so that's gonna that that number is gonna grow, uh, and demand for ASICs is gonna continue to skyrocket. Uh, Bitcoin mining margins are still <laughs> pretty ridiculous, and I think the end game is that there is a gonna be a commod- like a commoditization of ASIC miners uh, and profit margins uh, for for Bitcoin miners over the long term. Not next year, maybe not the year after, but. 10 years out, 50 years out, 100 years out, the profit margins are going to be very, very thin as it's the most competitive industry in the world or it's going to be. Uh, anybody can plug in this, this, these ASICs uh, and ultimately the, the, the ones that will win are probably have that power cost near zero. Uh, and so in the meantime, uh, there's still this, this huge uh, incentive to plug these things in and profit margins are not near zero. Uh, you can almost you can plug in at, at 20 cents uh, per per terawatt or per kilowatt hour and, and still be profitable in a lot of places. That's like that's like plugging it in on out your outlet at home. Uh, and so in, in the meantime, I think uh, ASICs are going to continue to be manufactured at a pretty rapid pace and hash rate is going to go exponential. I've seen some estimates that hash rate is going to increase by 50% here in 2022. So uh, a lot of these things are going to be plugged in. And I think the, the price of ASICs is going to continue to go up by a lot. When you think about hash rate and price and the relationship there,
0: does hash rate pull price or does price pull hash rate?
1: What came first, the chicken or the egg?
0: Depends that, who you ask. An yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, that's, a, I think, you know, rising hash rate strengthens network security. Uh, it, it reinforces the mutability of, of Bitcoin uh, and it, you know, expands the network effects and thus uh, Bitcoin becomes more valuable. So more people allocate to it. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a really tough question. I, I think there's no definitive answer there, but uh, I'm bullish on rising hash rate and bullish on, on rising network security. Got it. You guys got any other
0: questions? No. Thanks for coming on. I got, well, hold on. I got one more question. I Damn. Don't know. Just, chill out. Just, Sheesh. Just, just being nice to our guests here, Sheesh. right? Sheesh. Calm it down. All right. <laughs> Dylan, as you look forward over the next 12 months, we're still in January, so let's say 12 months, by the end of this year, what is the one thing that you think has a high probability of happening that most people are completely ignoring or uh, aren't talking enough about? Like, Is there one thing where you're like, bam, this is going to happen in my opinion, but a lot of people aren't. We recently saw Fidelity talk about other countries adopting Bitcoin and things like that. But like, is there one thing that you're saying completely undervalued by the market or not being spoken about enough?
1: Yeah, I mean, that Fidelity thing was was pretty big. I mean, a lot of Bitcoiners have been talking about it, uh, but it's been more of a kind of a niche thing. And to see some giant like Fidelity come out and reinforce that that opinion and that sentiment is, is obviously very strong. I think the 2020 midterms are going to be really, really interesting. Um, I know behind the scenes, there's a lot of people uh, working uh, on Bitcoin advocacy uh, and and basically uh, championing uh, pro Bitcoin candidates and i think we'll, what we'll see is any uh, crypto bitcoin opposition uh from political from political candidates uh they'll get ousted uh, and those pro bitcoin candidates uh are going to are going to be elected uh, i think i think in big numbers um, and i think we're just starting to see a lot of those politicians come out and so the the narrative that the us or that bitcoin is is pro capitalism pro freedom uh, and it's a us kind of uh as a us asset and and cbdcs are more of a of a communist Chinese uh, Eastern Eastern sort of asset or sort of uh, idealism is is something that I don't think is priced in. Uh, And the market's still kind of, there's still people that will say Bitcoin's gonna be banned. And and it kind of blows my mind. Um, I understand not everyone's living and breathing in the industry every single day, but I don't think that's priced in. The the US just basically Bitcoin becoming uh, the sort of thing that if you are opposed to it in the political spectrum or the political sphere, you stand no chance. Um, and so that, I think, is a development that we'll, we'll start to see in, in, in big numbers in 2022. And by 2024, I think it'll be uh, pretty, pretty understood that if you are, are not pro-Bitcoin, uh, then, then you don't stand a chance in US politics.
0: I definitely agree with that. I'm not going to say much more, but um, the elaboration that I'll provide is that there are a lot of candidates right now who have recognized this. And it's similar to challengers in the technology industry going up against incumbents. They constantly look for an edge. And so what do they do? They try to build disruptive technology to get network effects, to get some sort of advantage on customer acquisition, distribution, et cetera. And the incumbents usually try to use regulatory capture, uh, their size, their balance sheet, right, all the things. And, and pretty much people know in technology, what are the advantages of a challenger? You know, speed, innovation, strategy, versus the advantages of an incumbent. Uh, it's playing out in politics right now. There's a lot of incumbent politicians who think this is the dumbest stuff in the world. They want nothing to do with it. They think that everyone who touches Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or digital uh, technologies like this, they're criminals, they're bad people. They're cheering for the demise of the United States, et cetera. And there's a whole bunch of challengers who recognize the exact opposite. And realize that this is a generational shift in the way people think, in the way that they actually hold their wealth, in the way that they actually interface and communicate with each other, et cetera. And it's fascinating to me to watch people who are not even in elected office yet already reaching out and trying to establish support with the Bitcoin and crypto industry and to uh, allow people to know if you're a one issue voter, I'm on the right side of your issue. You know, basically vote for me because I believe what you believe. And there's not very many issues in American politics where people are one issue voters, right? There's, you know, maybe some gun stuff there, uh, probably some healthcare stuff, but you know, there's a couple, but there's not many. And now somehow Bitcoin uh, and the crypto industry in, in uh, a a larger uh, sense has become a one issue for literally hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And so there's entire, you know, kind of political monopolies on a single seat that have happened because somebody was in a certain jurisdiction with a certain view of the world. And they said, I stand for this and I'm going to always be this. And if you're this one issue voter vote for me. And the best examples yep. are like, you know, guns in Texas, right. Is the, the kind of meme, but there's a truth in the meme. I think throughout the country, there are going to be people who establish political monopolies on certain seats by just saying I'm pro this technology. I want to see everyone be successful. That's in this industry. And the wealth creation, the tailwind, the flow of intellectual capital, et cetera, into the industry will carry that person for literally decades to come in the political realm, uh, all the way to the point where eventually one of those people is going to become the president of the United States. It just may take, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, but it's going to happen at some point. And I don't think that that's being priced in by, you know, uh, many people in the political arena.
1: No, it's not at all. Um, Brad Sherman's cooked. Uh, he's done. Um, (laughs) uh, yeah, I mean, it's really encouraging to see that not many people understand what's unfolding. Um, and so, I mean, I'm getting a little bit of a behind the scenes look, uh, and it's, it's definitely really exciting. I mean, I'm a single issue voter. I didn't vote in 2020. I think for the most part, bipartisan politics doesn't get you anywhere. Um, so, you know, champion Bitcoin stand up for, for pro freedom and, and you'll get my vote.
0: Seems like a pretty, uh, pretty good pitch to a politician. I like that. Is your view of the world, Dylan, that uh, politicians are going to have to capitulate to the Bitcoiners?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, and there's, it's kind of a paradox because ultimately embracing Bitcoin, like for, say, uh, Bukele, right, uh, embracing Bitcoin, uh, this thing that he has no control over, um, and he didn't have his own currency to begin with, but it, it ultimately reduces the power of the state uh, marginally, I think actually uh, quite a, quite a bit, but uh, there is a paradox there that embracing Bitcoin ultimately uh will kind of strip a lot of the, the the fiat decree that politicians have currently. Um and obviously that's that's not too well understood, but the incentives are are aligned where they, they should, because there's a whole lot of capital and a whole lot of people in the world across demographics, across races, across sexes, across uh both parties uh that are that are these single issue voters. And so uh that's something that I think this last five minutes that what we've been talking about. It's not remotely priced in uh, or understood, for that matter. I think that you are very right, my friend. All right, how are we looking on uh, on subs
0: for uh, for Twitter and for the newsletter? Let's anyone who uh, who does not follow Dylan yet on Twitter, you're wrong. Let's go. Make sure 106,000. Let's go. There we go. I'm gonna get I think 300k by the end of the year. Easy. Book it. Yeah, he's like, yeah, that's gonna happen. 300. That's it. I think, he's got? Gonna, I think he's. it's not about me. I'm talking about Dylan's potential here. I'm all right? saying how many do you have? Uh, you know, 353, but who's counting? 300. <laughs> 353. Can you get to a million this year? <laughs> oh, so you got more faith in me, huh? Over here. Dylan. Dylan no, is 3X. Okay, and what's Dylan at? 100. Can he get to 300? All right. Are you going to get to... Uh, 3 million? Yeah. No, that's it. not 3X. <laughs> That's less than three. Oh, yeah, X. it is three, less than 3x. All right. There's, ah, uh, come on. We Told you 353. What up? Dylan. <laughs> Dylan, I just want to call out here very quickly. Wait, go back, pull that back up real quick. I just want to call out oh, in his bio, look at the third word. No, look at the third word, sports business and Bitcoin. He right. in the tailwinds. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: look
0: at no, tell guy. me some charts, man. Yeah. <laughs> give people what they want. Bro, that's like, that's the male equivalent of a finance thirst trap right there going on in the Twitter account. Like, right, We won't even start with yours. So let's, All right. See yeah. ya. That's what I thought. Yeah. John, thank you for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Anyone who, uh, who wants uh, for, I, I forgot to mention this last week. Uh, so we'll post some clips from this conversation. Uh, today, maybe tomorrow, and then uh, we'll post a full interview Sunday. Uh, the video will come out, and uh, you can listen to the podcast episode tomorrow. So, uh, I had people. Uh, uh, I don't want to say who it is, Dylan, but I'll text it to you. Who who messaged me? There's somebody who runs a very, very large, tens of billions of dollar asset management firm who DM'd me on Twitter last week and said, "Where are the charts? I'm listening to this guy He's talking about charts. There's no charts." Because listen to the podcast episode. So I had to go send them to him and he watched it. He goes, okay, very smart, very smart. I, I, I enjoyed that conversation. So you, uh, you, you got the eyes and ears of, uh, of, uh, of the right people. So keep it up.
1: Love to hear it. Appreciate the, you giving me the platform. All
0: right, buddy. We'll talk soon. Peace.